In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. On Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie, to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. Inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill, climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. Rates and Barrels, episode 103. It is Thursday, June 11th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, the focus will be day one of the 2020 MLB draft. That, of course, started up on Wednesday night. So we're going to break down the overall happenings, uh, some of the decisions that were made. We'll talk about the players from a real life and from a dynasty sort of perspective as we try and uh, put the pieces together and, and build some profiles on and who these players are and what they're expected to become in the years ahead. And, you know, before we started recording, you know, I think part of what made the draft feel good was just that it was the thing that was supposed to be happening this week. And in baseball, nothing that was supposed to happen this season has happened yet. Uh, so for four hours or so, things felt like they were in their right place, even though there are obviously some major flaws with the draft system itself. And uh, it just felt good to see highlights and to see uh, the players getting selected, you know, celebrating with their families because that was a, a shred of normalcy in what has become a very abnormal year and abnormal times. Yeah, yeah. And even then there was, you know, real life intruded. You know, we were, there was uh, comments on Twitter about, like, you know, who was doing social distancing right. And, um, um, you know, there were everybody was zooming in, basically, Um to uh, to get their congratulations there was no none of that sort of in uh studio experience that they usually have where they they have like five or ten or fifteen first rounders that come to the studio and get interviewed right away um but you know they did a pretty good job of dealing with that i think um you know they had some prepackaged uh zoom meetings basically some prepackaged zoom interviews and uh they had some old uh, footage of harold running around at a futures game harassing a lot of these players um <laughs> that was pretty funny um ESPN's um you know analysis i thought was i mean honestly just like maybe a little bit better um uh, i i think uh, Kylie is is really great and they had a good team around him uh, but MLB had a, had a good job, did a better job of packaging it and uh, making it maybe slightly more of an event and um, making it have a little bit more fun. I think it was a little bit more fun on MLB. I was trying to switch between the two, and I ended up settling on ESPN though myself. There's a couple weird things I, I noticed. Maybe it's because you know I work in content creation, but there was a, a point in which uh, there was an interview happening. Austin Martin 
was being interviewed by his college coach, Tim Corbin at Vanderbilt. And they were talking to each other on the screen. This was on the MLB network feed. And there wasn't a name on the graphic underneath either one of them, which seemed very odd from a, a production standpoint. Yeah, and I remember that actually very, uh, very well because um, there was they were joking about names, and I was like, I was like, oh wait, the Vanderbilt coach, I know who it is. It's something Corbin. What is it? And like Harold called him Marty or something, oh, or yeah. or the player called him Marty as if that's like maybe a nickname for him or something. Because in the end, Harold said like, "Have you ever called him Tim?" Yeah, there was also um, well, there were there were I was few like, weird I don't get like the that. joke. I don't get what's going on. <laughs> well, so it's kind of like if if you want, and I understand why MLB's draft can never be quite the same as the NFL draft or the NBA draft because we consume college football and college basketball in a way that is very different than the way that the casual baseball fans consume college baseball, and then you have you know high school players sprinkled in, of course, as well. Uh, so that complicates it's, things even further. But you are developing, you're developing the next level of star. Like that should begin on draft night. You should be putting names to faces and making mm-hmm. players as recognizable as possible and planting the seeds for you know the the fans who are tuning in. Like I mean, for for me to follow along and and do that on my own, sure, I, I'm paying closer attention to what's happening on the screen than probably the average person watching tuning in and out. Right? It just it just seemed kind of bizarre, but it also seemed very much in line with some of the underlying failures of Major League Baseball to promote its stars. It doesn't even know how to begin the process of doing that on a night when literally 90% of the people watching don't even know who the people are who are involved. Well, uh, let's not uh, get too uh, down on them because I think that if you look at you know at newscasts or uh, you know, ESPN, which is very nicely produced. Like, you know, you'll you we're in the age of Zoom right now. <laughs> we're in the age of of seeing a lot of people that used to wear suits in in t-shirts. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> definitely, the production value across the board is down. Uh, podcasts are the one place that we're like, yeah, we can, we're still doing the same thing. We're still here in our shorts, um, but. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, the other thing I will say is that there's a bit of a fundamental aspect to draft to to the MLB draft that's always going to make it a different occasion than the other sports, which is just that you know uh, you know past the first five, you're not really guaranteed that any of them uh, you know get into a major league game. You know, and if you're gonna if you're gonna raise the bar and say that any of these guys are gonna like play significant amounts of baseball. Um, you know, the percentages start dropping. So uh, it's a little bit different. Like in, in like football, I don't know. It's, it, it must have a lot to do with why the average career in football is like two and a half years or something because they have this massive draft for the most part. And it seems like at least for the first like three to six, um, the three to like three to six rounds, like those guys all play like immediately. Yeah, those guys all can have a role right away. Whereas nobody drafted last night would have a role if there were games today it's not like players would have signed last night 
uh, gone to their team and then been ready to play by Friday. Like that's just not how it works. That's not baseball. It's it's a much more delayed gratification from a fan perspective and from a player development perspective. But it, again, I and I'm I'm picking nits and I'm not going to keep going down that rabbit hole. I just found that to be yeah, particularly yeah. frustrating. But there was a lot of fun stuff happening, and we're going to break these players down uh, a bit along the way. Spencer Torkelson went first overall to the Tigers. Um, not really a surprise there. I think there were other options that they could have considered, and it wouldn't have been considered ridiculous. It just seemed like Torkelson was the favorite for that role. And my question to you, this is the same question I put to Emily Walden on Fantasy Baseball in 15 for Wednesday. If you had that pick, like who's the player you like the absolute most in this draft class? It's just... Uh... It, it's just a like a really uh, high bar for success for a first baseman and especially a right-handed first baseman. Like to me, put Austin Martin up against Torkelson, and it becomes like a a slightly hard choice for me. You know, like I know they announced Spencer Torkelson as a third baseman, but it seems most likely that he's a right-handed first baseman, and it's rare. Uh, that's a rare situation in terms of just existing as a starter in baseball um, and then having a pick that high uh, be spent on them. So, you know, he does have a 55 future hit tool by Fangraphs um, and 70 raw power, and that's the combo they're looking for. Um, but they say 40 arm on Fangraphs. I don't know if this third base thing is going to work out for him. Um, and he he already moved off a of third base in college, so it's like, you usually sometimes there's a college switch where you kind of go back against the um, the grain, but usually you kind of fall down the defensive spectrum. So it's just it's all or nothing. Whereas Austin Martin is like you know even if uh, the 60 hit tool doesn't come around or you know the the 55 game power uh, isn't there, uh, he's played all over the diamond, you know, and you know the the floor for him at least is um, you know passable utility man. You know, um, like I put the percentage likelihood that either plays Major League Baseball for more than three seasons higher for Martin. Right there. Well, there are more things he could do already that big league teams have valued. Right. Like there's defensive value alone carries Martin to a lot of different things. Uh, so it's. It's a funny exercise, I mean, because the Tigers just need position players. They just need anything, anyone, any anything that can change their core in the long haul. I mean, Riley Green was probably their top-ranked prospect entering uh, last night when you look away from all the pitching they've built up. So it it made sense that they were probably going to steer away from, from pitching. And I, I don't think, I mean, I don't know if there was any any pitcher that anybody was going to take at 1-1 in this draft class, even though there are some very interesting arms. Max Meyer was the first pitcher to go. He went third overall, but the the first surprise, it didn't take long to see it, was with pick two, Heston Kerstead goes to Baltimore. And I think on Keith Law's board, he was the 11th ranked player. Uh, if you look at the, the list over at Fangraphs, he's the only uh, one of those uh, first few picks who isn't already a top 100 guy. I guess Max Meyer's outside their top 100 as well. But 
there was a, a bigger strategy in play, right? Teams have a, a goal of trying to save a little bit on the signing bonus slot recommendation and then trying to get a better player later on who they can then pay more than the recommended slot for. And it kind of seemed like with the Orioles, things didn't end up playing out the way they had hoped. Yeah, I, I wonder if that was the case. I mean, the people were definitely projecting Heston further down, like to the Giants maybe. Uh, even I'd saw, I'd seen him linked, um, and the Giants picked... Uh, they picked they picked 13th. So that's a big, pretty big jump. And the thought was... We're going to get this guy for cheaper than the $7.8 million uh, pick value, the slot there, uh, and spend it uh, on somebody in the next, in the, uh, what's it called, the competitive balance round, um, where they had the first pick as uh, at pick 30. And so the thought was that many people thought that, that they were going to try and spend a little bit more on somebody of high school arm was the idea and nick bitsko and hmm, who was the other name um i forget i think maybe bitsko and abel uh, yeah abel the there was at least a chance that abel could have fallen i don't know abel it seemed like a lot of the mocks though was usually gone by like pick 22 23 a lot of times so he wasn't getting quite down to the competitive round he went 15 to the Phillies here. So, you know, uh, maybe it was Bitsko then, and Bitsko ended up going 24th to the Rays. So, you know, I wonder if that, if there was a lot of uh, uh, consternation in the uh, in the Orioles' uh, dugout, <laughs> the Orioles' um, uh, front office when that happened. Because they, they got Jordan Westberg, which, you know, fine, uh, college shortstop. Uh, but there's no... Um, there's no need to go over a pick value for Jordan Westbrook because, uh, you know, he's a, he's a four-year junior. Like, you know, he's ready to, he's ready to come out, you know? Right. The kind of player that I would expect to see a team go over slot for would be maybe like a Dax Fulton. If you look at the report on him, he's a six, six high school lefty. He had Tommy John. So had he not undergone Tommy John surgery, uh, Fangraphs suggested you know 15 to 20 overall was where his true talent was. If you take a player like that in, in round two, you're going to have to pay a lot more than recommended slot for a second round pick. So that's that's the sort of thing you can do by spending less early. And not to jump around too much, um, but I think it, it, it can work for us to talk about this thing thematically. So right now we're talking about sort of slot, over slot, under slot, and trying to explain that. And I think it, it's better for us to kind of talk about the players where that's relevant. So the one that really sticks out for me is Tyler Soderstrom, um, who also went above the Orioles' second pick, but he represents the type of player that you'll have to go over slot to get. A high school position player that has a commit to a large school. That that kind of he, Tyler Soderstrom is a son of a major leaguer catcher who's committed to UCLA. Good baseball program um, at a time when uh, you know of this two point six five million that uh, Soderstrom's supposed to get, he only gets I forget what it was like a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand, and the rest is deferred. So you know. Even if you gave him slot, he might say, ah, you know what, it's all deferred anyway. 
do I want to choose between $100,000 now or UCLA? Yeah, maybe I'll take UCLA. And so what worries me about that pick is that there's rumors that one team was going to try and punt the draft and pick uh, players that they couldn't or wouldn't sign. Uh, They would make an offer that looked like it was enough of an offer in order to get the next pick next year when hopefully they had more money. And I just, I worry about that one for the A's because Tyler Soderstrom was mocked um, to, to go in the sort of 15, 10 to 15 type range in a lot of mocks. He was thought of as a really, uh, as a really good player that may uh, even want more than his slot. Um, and we know that the A's were not about to pay their minor leaguers. And, you know, there's a $2.7 million slot on Soderstrom. And in order to sign him, you have to go over slot um, to, to, to get him. And, uh, you know, having not wanted to, they did reverse course and, and are paying their minor leaguers, but the A's um, would have saved about $3 million in not paying those minor leaguers. So the numbers are too close for me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that I've heard this. You know, in particular, that the A's are the ones punting the draft. I've not heard that, and I'm not necessarily accusing them of that. But I wonder if they pick Soderstrom and don't and don't expect to offer him any more than 2.65 million dollars, which is a slot. In which case, I think Soderstrom will go to college. Right, and they would then get that pick back in the first round next year. So, which of- maybe they maybe there's a, a dual thing. Maybe it's we don't want to pay the money right now. Um, we don't think that there's anybody in this draft that's worth that money. And we think that next year will be better. And next year might be better. Next year might be a really great draft um, because anybody who could get out of this draft probably try, try to get out of this draft. Yeah. You know, the, the player who I actually felt really bad when this, this happened, and it's, it's weird to say you feel bad for a player selected 17th overall when um, the bonus recommended slot there is like 3.6% million but nick york because the immediate reaction in the coverage was oh boston's the team that's punting they took a guy they have no intention of offering that much money to and uh, i guess they I, I was tracking this kind of loosely and i was mostly focusing on what was happening on the screen but it kind of sounded like the red sox were telling people no actually we, we do like this guy but did you ever kind of get a full understanding of, of why they took Nick York where they did. It's like, even if they were higher on him than most, this is a guy that on the Fangraphs board was ranked 165th uh, for yeah. this year's draft class. And he, they took him at 17, which, I mean, as fantasy players, we're all saying, hey, get your guy. But in this case, you know, you could have got your guy probably in the third round with relative ease. Yeah, yeah. I don't uh, I don't get it much. Um you know, he's not even on the uh, the sort of uh, sortable board that they have uh, for for the draft uh, at Fangraphs. Uh, he's 139th um, at MLB.com, which uh, can sometimes be exuberant about certain players, but not this one. I mean, it's a I guess it's a hit tool bet uh, most of all, and maybe maybe a bet that he can come off a second and be like a hit tool shortstop, um, which would change his his uh his value but like nobody picks second baseman um at least nobody picks high school second baseman i remember in high school i was bad and they put me at second base (laughs) it's 
Yeah, it's so, um, kind of where they, they mean, hide in infielder sometimes. Yeah, it suggests you don't have the arm. You know, there's not as many great lefty hitters. You know, you don't have the arm. You don't have the defense, really. And and nobody expects that much offense either from second base. I mean, there was that old joke, the old adage, second baseman hits second. But um, I don't think uh, that one is true anymore. <laughs> um, any case, uh, yes, I think that the slot stuff and the, you know, who's going to, you know, these high schoolers that were picked and which one of them is going to actually sign with the major leagues and which one is going to go to the uh, to uh, college and and like uh, which of those teams wanted that is interesting because you know if you think about resources though Boston and um, and the A's are very different you know um, so you know but on the other hand the A's took a player that everybody would want. Right. So at least there you're kind of saying, hey, you know, if we do get him for, get for the amount, like we're, we're happy. And if we don't, that's an OK plan B that we've thought through. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess I, I hadn't even thought of the, the, the implication of the like 100 plus ranking on Nick York and the idea that they might be the team that's tanking. Uh, that was punting the draft. Um, I suppose the second and third rounds will help us, you know, understand that a little bit better. If the if if someone who took a high schooler in the first round takes a another high schooler in the second round, it, it kind of inches it closer to, oh, maybe they they don't expect to sign anyone this year, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, you know, I think in the case of of Kierstad and, and and the other thing, that's like a, that's how we got into this whole discussion was about you know manipulating slot and trying to get under and over. Um, you know, it points to the risk of of playing around with that. You know, what if uh, what if you're punting the graph the draft and Nick York says, yeah, I'll take that money. You know, or uh, Tyler so- and you have to offer them something. You know. Uh, what if they they really didn't think Tyler Soderstrom would take the money because he's the son of a major leaguer? He's well off. He's going to UCLA. He doesn't need two point six five million. He might make more next year. And Soderstrom says, "Nah, man, I want to get my major league career started. Like, let's go." You know, and the A's are like, "Oops." So, <laughs> you know, punting it, it might be like an idea they had, but it, in the end, you have to make an offer. So, uh, and and for Kirstad, like, you know, if they were doing it for a reason to set up something later, maybe they got screwed. Um, the third pick for me uh, was a major riser, and I think I understand why. Max Meyer went to the Marlins, um, and a, a lot of the uh, a lot of the analysis focused on the fact that um, in terms of his fastball and slider, he's major league ready now. But I think that's obviously not a concern for the Marlins. They're not they're not like picking him to put him in the bullpen this year. You know? <laughs> right? Yeah, that's not the long term home for someone you're taking at three. Right. So what I think that the uh, major kind of toggle here is that Meyer has great slider command. He has a great fastball, and that's that's huge. But, you know, most of the guys that were picked in this top round top out 97 plus um, other than somebody we will analyze later. So uh, but Max Meyer, uh, you know, tops out at like 98, 99. I think he's even hit 100 um, and he has great slider command. And in, in the league where they're throwing fewer and fewer fastballs, um, I think slider command is huge. Um, you know, we know that the Indians prioritize slider command. Um, and, uh, the you know, their pick actually represents that to some extent. Um, not their first pick. Did they get another pick? Cleveland? 
Tanner Burns. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tanner Burns has a really good command. Um, and I think, um, you know, I saw a tweet uh, from Travis Sochik about how it's harder maybe to teach command than it is to uh, teach a tick or two, get a tick or two from better arm care, plyo balls, that sort of thing, shape the pitches, that sort of thing. Um, and Tanner Burns comes with a great command. So Max Meyer is like someone who comes with that command and a 98-mile-an-hour, 100-mile-an-hour fastball. So I think that's why he went third. I don't think it has much to do um, with his readiness necessarily. And that's a conversation I've actually had uh, with some draft prognosticators, uh, prognosticators who were moving Meyer up their board because of that, um, because of that slider command. Yeah, it was Meyer versus Asa Lacey, I think, for a lot of people. If you're taking a pitcher at three in that scenario, Lacey went fourth to the Royals. Uh, thinking about what Lacey brings to the table, 6'4 lefty, pitched at Texas A&M. I mean, do you see less in terms of the current profile that gives you confidence, even if there's just as much long-term potential value here? Uh, you know, Lacey looked good to me, but I just didn't see the, um, you know, just from... You know, I'm not necessarily um, the greatest scout scout, but in terms of just for the clips I've seen, I wouldn't necessarily say. I think he's a little bit more sort of power and good movement. Um, but, you know, I certainly saw um, a bunch of sliders that, you know, people still swing over. And so maybe he meant to put them in the dirt, but I definitely saw a few more sliders in the dirt from Ace of Lacey. Um, and if you watch somebody like Patrick Corbin, you want to see, you know, premier slider command you watch patrick corbin they're not usually in the dirt it's usually three inches off the bottom corner off the inside corner you know right a pitch that hitters will swing at you know i think good hitters are going to spit on sliders in the dirt yeah major league hitters so i'm not saying that necessarily asa lacy like they won't swing over a slider um or that he can't improve his command i just think that um you know one of the things that separates there's two things that separate these two guys one throws lefty one throws righty uh, that you might want to put Lacey higher than Meyer because he throws lefty. Uh, but Meyer has that slider command, which I think he's a little bit better than Lacey's. Lacey also has a more projectable body, which to some teams matters. Um, but when I looked at major league uh, pitchers, I could not find much of a height effect. So uh, maybe it matters with um, the transition from being a minor leaguer to a major leaguer, making maybe more tall pitchers make it because definitely the, uh, group of major league pitchers is taller than you know average or taller than is a, fairly tall i think the 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 sort of at the mean height is around six two six three um and so max meyer is below that and ace lace is above that uh, but i don't i think that uh, there are definitely teams you know i did this piece on fan graphs there are definitely teams that do not care and in fact i think look at a short pitcher as an arbitrage opportunity um, if you look at the number of pitches thrown by short pitchers versus tall pitchers, the A's have the most pitches thrown by short pitchers, and the Phillies have the most pitches thrown by high, tall pitchers. Hmm. I did not uh, did not know that, that had been studied. I mean, I'm, I knew teams that looked at it. I didn't realize that was something you'd written about. I've been writing for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it's been been around the block a couple of times, uh, but you we know, we both with- love this next pick, though. Yeah, I mean, Austin Martin falling to the Blue Jays at five, that's huge. I mean, for some people, this is the best player on the board. I know Keith Law was among the people that had 
Martin as the number one prospect in this class. Um, and as we were saying before, I mean, there's so many ways that he can be a, a good big leaguer, and that means if it all clicks, he ends up being a great big leaguer. Uh, so this is, uh, I mean, this is the pick that I think from a, a dynasty perspective, if you want to be uh, kind of aggressive, like let's say you had the first pick in your dynasty draft, I think you could make a very strong case for Austin Martin. Uh, now I realize that some of the concerns with Spencer Torkelson being a right-handed hitting first baseman, if his comp is Andrew Vaughn, that's a hell of a comp for fantasy. But Austin Martin has that higher ceiling of maybe being a five-category guy who plays up the middle. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, his his Fangraphs um, future values are pretty enticing to me. Um, they only have him as a forty-five field, which maybe um, like a college shortstop, like a college player that's played shortstop and center getting a forty-five future field. I don't know if I was going to toggle anything, I would toggle that one. And if I made that, if you make that 50, then he's 60 future hit 55 future game power, 50 future raw power, 50 speed, 50 field, 45 arm, you know, uh, maybe he just ends up at, at second, um, or center or something, but, uh, you know, definitely has played all over and has a really nice balanced, uh, you know, hit tool forward kind of uh, package that I that I think is uh, useful. Yeah, I just I, I could I could see that profile blossoming into being a star. So I, I'm definitely excited to see what Austin Martin ends up doing. Emerson Hancock went at six. Uh, I I don't have a lot on on Emerson Hancock. Is there anything about him that uh, that you really like? Um, yeah, the one thing that's cool is that he was, uh, you know, he's touching 97, um, you know, and the, you know, the reason he fell, you know, fell is is always a relative term for people. Uh, I will note that MLB had him four, um, you know, overall uh, going into the draft, um, and uh, and so did Fangraphs actually. Um, and he ended up going, uh, six, that's not like a huge fall, but it, you know, one of the, if there was a reason he fell, it's because late in the season, um, he, uh, he kind of fell off a little bit in velocity, but I think that a major league team, um, a major league team that is, uh, that has good arm care protocols and has good development, uh, pitcher development. And I do believe the Mariners are one of those teams. They would love to get a player like that because if he's touching 97, you don't have to move the max much. All you have to do is move his average to 95, which is about average in, in Major League Baseball now. Is people sitting uh, two two ticks away from their uh, their max. So if he can sit 95, 96, hey man, there's not a lot of people who are sitting 96 as starters, um, and so that that puts him ahead of um, a, a lot of people and. I wanted to put that up against, and just so that, like, we're talking thematically again, uh, I want to just put that up against Reed Detmers, who went uh, 10 to the Angels. Reed Detmers, according to Fangraphs, is topping out at 94. Now, you can get him to 92, maybe, and he has a good curveball, probably. I, You know, you watch those, 
those like pitching ninja type stuff. And I think curveballs are actually fairly hard to evaluate from our angle on those things because curveballs look great, you know, but because they have that nice big shape. But what if it's easy to spot? What if it's not high spin? What if it's, you know what I mean? Like I would rather know a little bit more about like the velocity of the curveball itself. You know, it's average sitting velocity. I would like to know about its spin rate. I'd like to know about its movement. And I'd like to see those in numbers because, you know, a huge big curveball doesn't always work in the major leagues. Sometimes people see it coming. And um, so if you're not going to move Reed Detmer's, uh, you know, max velocity much, then you're talking about a 92-mile-an-hour lefty with a good curveball. Maybe he's Madison Bumgarner. He's not. Somebody said Clayton Kershaw. I'm like, no. Clayton no. Kershaw came into the league with much more velocity than that. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's an un. That's just. It's unfair for just about anyone to take that comp, but to put also, that on Reed Devers yeah, is reckless. On top of that, like, okay, yeah, uh, maybe he's Madison Bumgarner, Clayton Kershaw. Like, that's a big mantle to put on him, dude. You're gonna. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> like you're you're gonna you're gonna take a pick hoping it's one of those two why don't you take a pick that's from a broader class of people you know like um like look at high spin uh good breaking ball righties there's like there's like 10 15 20 of those you know what I mean? <laughs> like kind of you have to like think about the buckets a little bit um and uh and so i like the hancock pick more than i like the detmers pick even more than the four uh, the four slots that separate them. Yeah, I think when you're talking about a two pitch lefty right now, and the fastball is just you know good command, but not really good at all for for velo. You have to develop a changeup, or you do have to find a way to start throwing harder. And I think it's possible that both happen. It's probably unlikely that both happen, and it's hard to take that sort of leap at 10. But I think the comp that I heard during the coverage last night on MLB Network was from uh, Carlos Colazzo at Baseball America. I thought he comped Reed Detmers to Drew Pomeranz, which seemed like an actual comp that makes sense (laughs) in terms of what he actually does instead of just being like, well, he's left-handed, so it kind of looks like Clayton Kershaw. Yeah, Yeah, in terms of slot, I don't think he looked much like Kershaw either. Yeah. So, I mean, with the big curveball, and, and you think about what happened when Pomeranz was a starter versus what happened once he became a reliever, and it, it's a little easier to see the range of outcomes with a comp like that. And uh, here, another thing. Uh, I guess 60, 60 future command on Detmers. Uh, that could be uh, Kershawian, but I think Kershaw is more like 70, 80 command. Um, so... Anyway, uh, that was a, a thing that, that stuck out to me about uh, Hancock and Detmers um, in particular. The little run of picks in between those two guys, 7, 8, and 9. Nick Gonzalez, uh, undersized second baseman from New Mexico State. I mean, a walk-on at a program that's not a powerhouse program by, by any stretch. Uh, he went to the Pirates at 7. And then Robert Hassel the third came in the Padres at 8. I think most of the mocks I'd looked at had Zach Veen going in that spot. Veen ended up going at 9 to the Rockies. So Nick Gonzalez is just interesting because he does not fit the profile either, right? It's the same it's similar to, you know, Max Meyer being an undersized starter who throws hard and has a great slider. Nick Gonzalez all he does is hit and there are questions about the competition he faced and even just the park factors, the in- the run environment in New Mexico, the altitude, right? Like that's 
a bit of a concern as well. Um, what, what do you make of, of Gonzalez, though? I mean, do you think this ends up being a, a good pick for the Pirates? And do you like him as a guy that you could see as maybe being quick to the big leagues for, for dynasty purposes? Yeah, I mean, the thing that's uh, probably exciting um, for the Pirates is that the hit tool looks pretty decent. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to look at those power numbers and translate them. You're right, because he did hit 12 homers in 16 games. Uh, in the truncated 2020 season after hitting 16 in 55 games last year, Nick Gonzalez did. So his slugging percentage was 1.155. Nobody kind of hangs that kind of future on him. Uh, But in terms of, you know, strikeout rate, uh, you're talking about an 11% strikeout rate, um, which is fairly exciting. Um, so, you know, middle infielder who can strike out, you know, 10 to 15% of the time, um, and, uh, and maybe put some good wood on the ball. <laughs> Sounds like a, like an Adam Frazier, uh, replacement, especially since he's short, but, um, I don't know. Uh, one thing I will say is that at, at his position, you know, at his draft position, being a hitter, uh, being a short, being drafted as a shortstop, um, his chances of becoming a productive major leaguer are higher than the pitchers that were taken ahead of him. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's very fair, and I think being a bit more polished, having success in the Cape Cod League with wood bats, I mean, I think that answers yeah. a few questions as well that you don't necessarily have answered yet from the, the high, high school players that were taken after him too, like Hassel and and Veen. Uh, but Hassel over Veen was a surprise, again, because every mock I looked at had Veen going earlier of those two. And uh, they talked a lot about it on MLB Network. I mean, how excited are you as a hitter when you land in, in Colorado? I think there's a little bit of that that's it's obviously true because hitting in that park is fun, but it comes with the downside of having to adjust the hitting on the road, too. So it's not just all sunshine and, and roses uh, being drafted uh, by the Rockies, but I, I thought Veen, just looking at the video, he just looked like the kind of guy who's going to be an outstanding hitter for a long time at the big league level. As much as you can watch video and clips of a, of a hitter and, and just see uh, the ease of, of the swing and everything, it just it all it all looks like it's going to work as it pertains yeah. to Veen. Yeah, and there's parts of Hassel's profile that are very hit or miss, and I don't mean uh, hit tool or strikeout rate or whatever. He has a, a probably a better future hit tool possibility than Veen, but without the power uh, necessarily. And you know his game power might be average at best for Hassel, whereas Veen looks like he can have really good uh, game and raw power. Um, and more of Hassel's uh, excitement, like more of his uh, tools are kind of shifted towards tools that are not as uh, correlated to future success in baseball, if you know what I mean. Like uh, get, like Robert Hassel is faster than Zach Veen. Who cares? Right. I, I think speed is nice, better than not having it, but if you're going to be missing a tool, it, it, yeah. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of ways to be a great player without speed. Robert Hassel has a better arm than Zach Veen. There are plenty of center fielders that don't have great arms and it's definitely a devalued tool in terms of across baseball. And then neither one of them actually 
is a lock to stay at center field, not in the same way that like a Pete Crow Armstrong. Most people think that he can definitely stay at center. Fangraphs hung a 70 future field on Pete Crow Armstrong. They they put a 50 future field on Veen and a 50 on, on Hassel. So to me, Hassel is like, he better be a center fielder. Whereas Veen is like, you know, he's got a few few ways he can make it work. Maybe his bat is better and he's a, he's a left fielder or right fielder. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think the arm is so bad either. But it's like, well, if he doesn't move well enough to play center, he's definitely going to left either. So I, I, I don't know. I, I like that pick a lot. I just felt like the Rockies uh, kind of reap some of the benefits of a surprise or two that happened in the first uh, eight picks, being able to get Veen in that spot. Top performers in business and sports often attribute their success to their morning routine, whether it's waking up early, setting their goals for the day, exercise, or meditation but not everyone has the time to do it all. With Hydrant, you can jumpstart your mornings. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners. The formula is vegan, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a bucket packet for a 30-day supply, and you can save even more with a monthly subscription. And for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com, enter the promo code ATHLETIC at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com. Enter promo code ATHLETIC for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code ATHLETIC. The next chunk, the 11 through 20 range, I felt bad when this happened too. Garrett Crochet was taken by the White Sox, and if the White Sox draft a lefty, then somebody with a microphone has to say, hey, maybe he's Chris Sale. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I really, really wish that that didn't happen. Um, he, he only had one appearance in 2020, and, and the Fangraphs report uh, points out he, he touched 99 in there. Uh, their comp was Andrew Miller, which again seems more based in reality and not just dreaming on, on a player's uh, future. But uh, interesting, too, I and mean, part of that sale comp, I think, is that Crochet did spend uh, most of his college career coming out of the bullpen. So that naturally, when you say, oh, okay, they took this guy at 11 overall, he's a 6'5 lefty, he throws hard, maybe he's a starter someday. I understand where the sale comp comes from. Like, I, I get it. It's just kind of a funny thing. It's like, you're probably setting everybody up to be a little bit disappointed. And that is kind of a crappy way to start a player's career. Yeah. And there were uh, definitely people uh, mad online about that pick. Um, I don't know, six foot six, 218. There's a little bit of a, a height comp there, too, I guess. Although uh, I wonder how many pounds Chris Sale weighed when he was drafted. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to predict. 40 pounds less than that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Chris, Chris sale. If you told me he weighed 175 when he was drafted, I'd, I wouldn't push back on it, but I'd say, yeah, okay, maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, the, uh, Patrick Bailey jumping ahead to the giants pick at, um, at uh well you know not to not to skip austin hendrick for the to the reds at at 12 was interesting some people would say oh well they just put together this whole um 
this whole you know pitching development program won't they take a pitcher and i think i actually kind of think the opposite i think what they're going to try and do in cincinnati is dominate the twenty thousand dollar signings and um you know use analytics and uh the driveline connections and the driveline brand basically to attract a lot of pitchers and you know there's an interesting piece by dan zimborski on fan graphs about uh, what kind of players, um, what kind of players late, like what kind of late players make the major leagues? You know what I mean? Like what kind of, he kind of, he did it as a, in a fun way of being like, you know, what would, you know, what would the major leagues look like? Let's field an all round late round team basically, you know, but what stuck out to me was once you, um, you know, do something like 15th round plus, let's just look at that list. You know, what kind of uh, of people uh, sign in the 15th round and are good? You've got Josh James, Josh Hader, Matt Strom, Mike Fires, Zach Davies. Uh, you know, it seems like a, 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 like a good group of players. If you look at the same group for hitters, um, you also have people like Zach Short, uh, Mauricio Dubon, um, JT Riddle, like it's pretty hit or miss, like tr- trying to get a shortstop, you know, it, it, that was even 10th round plus trying to get a shortstop in the 15th round. You get Zach short, try to get a second baseman. You get Dubon Ty France. Uh, this is the kind of uh, hitters you get, you know, later on, but pitchers, I feel like, um, there's a lot of pop-up pitchers. And if you go 10th round plus, we were talking about the fifth round here. Uh, you get Brandon Woodruff. If you, you go fifth round plus you get, um, Jacob DeGrom, Kyle Hendricks, Matthew Boyd, Chris Paddock, Dallas Kike. Like, these are really good pitchers, and we're talking about fifth round plus. So, I think that the Reds are going to go out there and be like, we're going to dominate this fifth round plus, and then we're going to put them into our pitch shaping gas camp program, and they're going to come out the other end, um, you know, better for it. So, uh, that's why I think they took a high school outfielder with their 12th pick. Yeah, uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And as you kind of look through some other picks in that range, Mick Abel ended up going at 15 to the Phillies. Uh, he's ceiling-wise in terms of the, the pitchers taken. I mean, the high school pitchers, like he was the number one high school pitcher in this draft for, I think, pretty much everybody. And uh, to see him at 15 is pretty interesting. I, I would imagine he's, he's going to sign I mean, at, at that level. Like, why why wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, but again, um, you know, he probably has a commit. Um, I wonder if you're if you're a pitcher or a hitter. I wonder if you're like if you're Ed Howard or you know Ed Howard who the, the shortstop that signed with the Cubs or Mick Abel, uh, the pitcher that signed with the Phillies. Um, is there is there a big difference between? I think there might be. I think a, a high school pitcher might jump at the money quicker than a high school hitter. I think it makes sense just based on you're just worried injury about the next four years. risk yeah. and yeah shelf life and I mean do you want to be developed by people who will take really good care of your arm or would you like to run the risk that your Throw college coach wants to win a college World Series and will <laughs> yeah. just destroy your arm in the process like I I think you take yeah. the money in this case yeah so um, so I, yeah I, I wonder if if Abel is more likely to sign than Howard. Um, so I guess that puts the Cubs in our in our pool of uh, possible punters, and and there and there has been um, you know some discussion about the Cubs liquidity, 
having started the new uh, TV station, not getting uh, TV money this year and not getting uh, the money from the cash cow that is Wrigley and claiming, um, you know, poverty. Uh, it'd be funny if the Cubs uh, were using Ed Howard as a, as a way to punt. Um, but um, I did want to point out uh, Justin Foscu, uh, college second baseman, a little bit different than a, a high school second baseman just because it's more projectable. You have uh, college stats that are easy to sort out. Um, and I wanted to point you to a cool um, link. I, I tweeted about it, uh, but the Driveline guys put together a college war uh, spreadsheet that you can kind of sort and, and do different things with. And 2020 is a terrible season, so I'm not going to, uh, and terrible short season, so I'm not going to uh, kill Foscu too much for where he ranked on that board. But in 2019, uh, Foscu had uh, basically 5.7 war um, and was ranked right behind uh, Heston Kierstad. Um So, you know, he was in a, in a decent place. Uh, not too far behind Aaron Zapato and Spencer Torkelson and Garrett Mitchell. So, um, you know, maybe the the reason that he was uh, picked ahead of Mitchell had to do with the fact that he can play the infield. Maybe um, they wanted uh, to get someone on the infield. Yeah, I mean, thanks to a few surprises. You mentioned, I think, Patrick Bailey to the Giants at 13. Um, Foscue at 14 was a little bit of a surprise. I mean, I think he was a top 30 guy for people who rank prospects but I, I keep thinking like the Brewers and maybe even the Mets both ended up with better players than expected uh, Pete Crow Armstrong went to the Mets at 19 Garrett Mitchell went to the Brewers at 20 I just it seemed like those were two guys that the scouting community really liked and Mitchell in particular was expected to go earlier uh, one key difference of course between two Crow Armstrong coming out of high school longer path of the big leagues of course Garrett Mitchell coming out of UCLA probably maybe only two years away and I think I think of the players who went in the the middle part of the round Mitchell might be one of those guys that plays up quite a bit in keeper and dynasty leagues because of his proximity to becoming a big leaguer yeah yeah we haven't uh, talked ETAs too much so maybe that's a good theme to kind of uh, kind of refocus on the draft here but um as a, uh, let's see, he was born in uh, 1998, so he's at 21.28. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but as a 21-year-old, he's uh, going to be a little bit closer. Uh, we talked about how, Mac, how close Max Meyer is. But, you know, also just in terms of skill set, um, you know, being a center fielder, uh, upping his floor, um, you know, you may may want to see more power than, you know, Mitchell only hit six homers in his entire uh, college career. Uh, but also, he only struck out 81 times. Uh, so that is a... Why don't they just put rates on here, man? Just put rates on here. <laughs> I mean, it's I don't... an 18% strikeout rate. It's, yeah. not, it's not amazing, but it's, it's, it's pretty good. Um you know, so uh, I think, uh, you know, good hit tool, good defense, you know, college age, they'll move him fast is what I think. Yeah, probably becomes the best prospect in the Brewer system uh, along the way too, passing Bryce Terang or Hedbert Perez. 
uh, which is the result of them having Apparently the worst the farm system in the league. Like that's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he's a nice prospect in his own right, and I think they were fortunate to have the, the option of taking him in that spot. Uh, the 21 through 29 range, of course, the Astros did not make a selection last night, um, which you know still kind of makes me smile a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't really know why that brings me joy, but it does. Uh, the Jordan Walker was a guy that went a bit earlier than expected. He went 21st overall to the Cardinals. It kind of sounds like he's leaning towards signing as opposing to following through on a previous commitment to Duke. So uh, that's. One of the surprises in that range, uh, you mentioned Nick Bitsko in passing. He went 24th overall to the Rays. He's really interesting just because he's one of the youngest pitchers in the draft. And I believe he also kind of like sped up his high school uh, graduating process a little bit. So that's why he's he's so young. And this is a huge ceiling pick. I mean, there's plenty of ways it can go wrong for, for any high school player drafted, but Nick Bitsko is if you if you like high ceiling pitchers and you want to take the what could go right angle, let's say you're picking a little bit later in a dynasty scenario, you might want to follow what the Rays did and, and take that chance. Yeah, um, you know, I, I wonder if uh, he uh, was uh, sad about it at all. <laughs> I mean, uh, reclassifying to get into this draft when most other people wanted to get out, uh, but. Um, he just thought uh, that he was ready in terms of his own development. A uh, bit of a one of these uh, studiers um, that, that kind of studies his, his own stuff, and then um, you know he kind of uh, marketed himself a little bit. He had to uh, you know put uh, videos of himself up on on social media and stuff like that in order to uh, to get the word out because uh, you know. As a high schooler, uh, maybe you know, maybe in Pennsylvania they'd, he'd have been scouted, but you know, all the scouting budgets were were slashed and stuff. So, uh, to some extent, it's a victory for the kind of flat ground type stuff. Uh, flat ground is an app created by Pitching Ninja, uh, where pitchers can kind of um, you know put up video of themselves and show show, show you know what they've got. Um, and some people see um, you know Bitsco as having benefited from that. It's such a great app. Because we we've maybe alluded to this before, even if we haven't talked about it explicitly, but baseball is really becoming such an extreme pay to play sort of sport. You know the the means it takes to be on the showcase circuit are increasingly making the game less accessible to everyone. And what Rob Friedman, what Pitching Ninja has done by putting that together, it's a way for players to get eyes that wouldn't otherwise watch them on them and that's a huge thing to have that available so a uh, tip of the cap to pitching ninja for for doing that and it's it is cool that that may have been a factor in, in bitsco going 24th overall here's here's uh uh here's the the tweet that i have is that david adler says Rays draftee nick bitsco on why posting his rapsodo data on social media might have helped his draft stock Obviously, and this is the quote, obviously, I don't think anyone's putting a track man up in my high school field. So, um, you know, with the lack of uh, of the showcases, basically, that would have allowed people to get his spin rate. Um, you know, he kind of he kind of advocated for himself, which is uh, kind of a fun story. Uh, we talked about uh, Tyler Storstrom a lot to the A's. Um, Aaron Zabato to the Twins. There was a fun graphic up on, I think it might have been MLB Network or ESPN, I forget now, that 
basically had um, their exit velocities uh, between Aaron Sabato and, and Nelson Cruz. Is that right? Mm, yeah. I think I remember, yeah. I remember that, yes. Um, and they were very similar. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I you watch him, you can see it. It's all about uh, hitting the ball real hard. <laughs> I mean, it tends to be a good that's thing. That's why you get him. Yeah, but uh, fifty-five future hit, thirty-five present hit. If he hits that fifty-five future hit, he'll be uh, a very good uh, hitter in, in baseball. Uh, if he sticks more towards the forty side of hit of the hit tool, he'll be more a little bit more of an all-or-nothing slugger. Oh, I accidentally flew by Bryce Jarvis. By the way, at eighteen, he was another one of those guys that as the the middle of the round was playing out. You know, that was kind of in the range of where he was expected to go. The Diamondbacks, the team that selected him. Uh, he's just a pretty interesting guy, too, because like a lot of college pitchers, I think he's fairly quick to the big leagues. And, uh, yeah, I, I just I, I thought I thought if, if the Brewers went pitching at 20, he'd be among those guys that was in the mix for them. So I'd looked at him a bit previously. But uh, I don't know. I, I think Jarvis, what, what kind of ceiling do you think Bryce Jarvis has? Yeah, I think that was a that's a that's cutting to the point of it because I did write a piece about how um, how much work he did to get to where he is now, and um, he got his sitting velocity up from eighty nine ninety to ninety three ninety four, um, and uh, that got him on the on the uh, in the first round basically. Uh, but he also did pitch design sessions at Driveline, um, you know, body design sessions at, with Eric Cressy. Um, and has revamped his body. Um, and I did reach out to a talent evaluator and, and asked if, you know, is he peaking? You know, like, did he, like, if you're an organization, do you ever look at someone like this and say, how much more can we do for him? Like, he unlocked it himself almost. He, he did the so work like, already. Yeah. And, you know, um, his changeup is really good and it comps to Tyler Beatty's. So you're like, oh, yeah. Maybe he's Tyler Beatty right now, which is I, I think he has okay. I think he has more command. It's okay, but it, it's just like sometimes you'd rather pick a guy like Emerson Hancock, where you're like, "Oh man, that dude can hit ninety seven, and we're gonna unlock the rest," you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which has like weird implications for like what what you should do in the my in in high school and college. Maybe you should just you know make sure you hit ninety eight a couple times on the gun, and then make everything else look like crap. <laughs> or or make sure you flash plus on your pitches but not all the time <laughs> i mean it should be a mark of, of good good instincts and it just being a great great uh worker to be able to do that without i i would think it's a positive look I mean, over your about, shoulder yeah the 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 comp is trevor bauer not because of the pitches and what they're doing because talking to Bryce Jarvis was like talking to Trevor Bauer. That's that's what I felt. Bryce Jarvis literally said in the piece, I like pitch design sessions more than the game. Hmm. <laughs> that does sound like something Bauer would say. Right? He's like, the the, the point is getting better. I love getting better. So um, I think that's that's uh, the kind of mindset you want. That's a, that's um, you, you want to pair it with dominating in the game. But I, I'm sure Jarvis has that that piece too, um, to, to some extent. I know Bauer does. Um, but, um, you know, for example, the Diamondbacks, uh, don't seem to care about this, whether or not they're peaking thing. They took both, they took both of their picks, uh, Bryce Jarvis and then in the comp round, um, I almost don't want to try this last name. <laughs> oh, now you're committed. 
Slade Chicone? I think it's Chicone, yeah. Ch- Chicone. Yep. The double C is a is like a K, I think. Chicone. Slade Chicone, uh, both of them are driveline guys. Uh, both of them up their draft stock tremendously by upping their velocity and shaping their pitches. Um, and uh, Diamondbacks say, sure, come on board. The Diamondbacks have a... Uh, someone asked me to name my top five in terms of pitching design to pitching development. Um, and um, I think it went something like Yankees, Astros, Dodgers as the triumvirate at the top. And then I said the Reds are threatening to join with their with their revamping, and I think the Mariners there. If I had a, a six that I wanted to put on there, it would be the Diamondbacks. Um, they've done a lot of revamping with... Um, oh, man, who was the guy who came over from the Pirates? Uh, they've... I know Dan Heron's done a lot at the major league level, but they also have uh, a good group in the minor leagues. I, I've researched this before. I'm sorry that I'm blanking on the names right now. Um, but um, oh, it's an analytics, analytics guy, right? Yeah, yeah, but, I, I, but, yeah. I remember the the move, and I'm blanking on the name. But also a guy that like traveled with the team, so like really good with players too. So, but um, any case, uh, the. Uh, the Diamondbacks seem to not care too much about whether or not they're peaking, and maybe they um, are kind of deciding, like, you know, let's get these guys to the major leagues sooner and uh, and pair them with what we got at the major leagues. Um, and, um, you know, so uh, I thought that was interesting about Jarvis. Even if he is, uh, quote-unquote, peaking, the peak looks pretty good. Um, he has a plus change-up um, and a really good spin um decent ride on the fastball uh and now good velocity and what they did at driveline was separate the breaking balls so now he throws a bit of a like a gyro cutter like a, a cutter that doesn't have much movement but it is harder like an 88 mile an hour cutter uh 89 mile an hour cutter and a bigger curveball uh, that is more 12 to 6 so you know maybe the Diamondbacks are like hey if we don't have to do a lot of work we don't have to do a lot of work that's great let's do it the other player I want to talk about, and obviously there's a few guys that went in the first round. There are a few guys that were in the comp A round who we're not going to get to in this episode, but I think he's interesting because of some of the things that were being said during the coverage. Uh, is Carson Tucker. He's the younger brother of Cole Tucker. He was selected by Cleveland with the 23rd pick. And what I thought was kind of interesting is that, you know, because there's nothing happening right now, uh, the suggestion during the MLB network uh, feed when they were talking about the Tucker pick was that being. Being with his older brother, who ordinarily, of course, would be playing probably for the Pirates right now if things were happening, being around him and other major leaguers might have been uh, even more valuable, quite a bit more valuable than playing out his final high school season. And I kind of thought about that. It's like that actually does make some sense, like the types of preparation, like the knowing what you're supposed to be doing as a big league player and spending time doing that probably prepares you better for your start of your professional baseball career than you know that last push against competition that might not even be really nearly as good as it should be for your development yeah um probably in a lot better place than uh somebody like a brandon nimmo Um, yeah the good 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 comp for just the sake of like yeah being in wyoming and just being basically on a landlocked island with no baseball being played. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 
And interesting to think about what this last year, this year of development will mean for these players. Uh, there probably won't be a minor league season for them to step into, and not a single one of them will make a taxi squad because there's no way that, you know, I mean, the only one I could think of is maybe actually Garrett Mitchell um, making the Brewers squad as the last player, as the 50th man, if they have that sort of 50-man rostered idea. Um and even then, I don't really think so. <laughs> um, you know, what do they do with that last year of development? Driveline just announced that they will uh, being will let kids play for free at their new facility. Hmm. Um, you know, and I think, um, you know, there are going to be these sort of unlicensed, unsanctioned, but look the other way uh, games that are being played around uh, the U.S. because you know, teams will want those players to continue to develop, uh, but they won't be allowed to necessarily coach at the games. Um, and they won't necessarily want their players there officially because they wouldn't want, um, them to get injured. Um, so, you know, you kind of take your, your own life into your own hands a little bit, but at the same time, uh, a loss of your development is kind of big. So, uh, we'll, it's a, it's a gray area that I'm going to, uh, cover some more and I'm interested in learning more about and talking to more people about, I have some quotes in hand. I think it's a worth thinking of, worth thinking through. Um, but in the end, it's a game that they want to play. Um, and what else are they going to do to some extent? So, um, I think, uh, uh, we'll, we'll see some of those games popping up, um, one thing I wanted to do is like, you know, think about these uh, guys in the context of the larger group of prospects. So like, where might these guys slot into a top 100? Um, and I, and I wonder if there are that many that would. So, you know, for example, last year, um, Adley Rutschman, number one pick, uh, where does he rank right now at the end of the year? Uh, you know, top 10, top five, maybe. I mean, at Fangraphs, top five. Um, so, you know, the number one pick Torkelson should be, you know, a, a top 10, top 15 type prospect right away. Uh, but after that, it, it, uh, it kind of opens up. I mean, um, you know, number two pick was Bobby Witt. Uh, he's 23rd on Fangraphs. Uh, number three pick was, uh, Vaughn. I think they liked him. Uh, 37th. Uh Oh, we're already almost dropping out of the top 100. Lede was fourth, not in the top 100. Oh, not in the top 50 at Fangraphs. Let's see if he's in the top. Yeah, he is. He's 51. Um, when are we gonna When are we gonna fall out? Let me see. Ladolo is probably Josh Jung. Yeah, Josh it's, Jung. It starts to fall the apart there. And that's the eighth pick. The eighth pick. So. It's likely, and, and, and I see these, you know, I have these leagues where you can own anybody, and I see that my uh, co-owner um, picked up some players that might be drafted on the second day, <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, like, uh, not, would not necessarily be on my radar uh, right away. So in terms of this draft, like, I'd see Torkelston, Kirstad, maybe. I mean, there was that reach factor. Um, Meyer, Lacey, Martin, I think, uh, definitely a top 100. But if you talk about, like, Nick Gonzalez, Robert Hassel, Zach Veen, 
not guaranteed to be top 100. Uh, Fangraphs does drop a, a top 100 number on uh, their 2020 grid, and they put seven, seven in the top 110. They must go. They must number them down a little further. So six in the top 100. Uh, Torkelson, Lacey, Martin, all inside the top 50. They have Hancock at 75, Veen at 80, Nick Gonzalez at 86, and then Kerstead at 110. And I and I would not to accuse anyone of everything, um, especially without uh, doing better research. But I, I do think that generally we have a bit of a recency bias with prospects. We yeah, or like a youth bias, like we're we're biased to the shiny new toy, whatever the name is for that one, you know. And so we're going to slot these guys in. Uh, I think there's going to be another reckoning by the end of next year where, you know, of course, some guys come up that were further below and some guys fall off. Uh, But in terms of staying power, um, you know, at the end of next year, at the end of this year, even how are we going to move guys up and down too? (laughs) Yeah. The causes for moving minor league players up and down this year are going to be very much reduced, but the other thing I would I would point out, and we've talked about it a little bit. I think we talked about it on the Jordan Alvarez getting promoted episode a little over a year ago now. Writing about prospects, scouting prospects, and then ranking prospects, those are among the most difficult jobs that people have in the baseball community. And then on top of all that, a lot of rankings are not for fantasy leagues. They're for real-life value and implications and those sorts of projections, right? So that's where our friend James Anderson and the rankings that he does over at Rotowire, those are fantasy prospect rankings, and those are mm. different. And I'd say like one thing that would immediately stand out to me is that uh, C.J. Abrams is his 10th ranked overall prospect. Mm. And you know where you find C.J. Abrams on a real projection prospect list is almost always going to be a lot lower, or at least until Abrams gets closer to the big leagues and and shows a lot of the things that mean more from a real context. Like It's going to take that to happen before that gap closes. Um, yeah, and I think about that a little bit with, uh, say, Joey Bart, um, a top five prospect uh, by in, in real life rankings. Um, no, not top five, top ten. Uh, top 10 prospect in real life rankings. There's enough swing and miss already in his game um, where he might just be a guy who hits like 240 with, you know, 15 to 18 homers. Not bad, but like from a fantasy perspective, you're not really getting any of that blocking game calling, you know, (laughs) any of that. So I I tend to like, um, you know, think of uh, that as a, and then also like, um, back end uh, pitchers that might be useful on the back end or swing starters. Um, you know, I would weight the 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 upside a lot more in a fantasy uh, than any sort of polish. Uh, does that ring a bell with any with any pitchers? I'm, I'm like maybe like Ian Anderson, um, who comes in at 44 on Fangraphs. Like I'm not convinced that he's uh, that he has the makings of a top end pitcher, but he has a lot of pitches and decent enough command that he could probably be a backhand pitcher. You know what I mean? Right. I would say the the counter to that would be the opposite end of the, of the argument. It would be like I would rather stash Ethan Hankins, just to throw a name out there, if someone I actually have in a dynasty league, 
And just looking at where James actually has him on his rankings, he has Hankins like in the 120s. He has Ian Anderson's in the 150 range. On Fangraphs, it's a little bit closer. Uh, 53 for Tariq Skubal over uh, 44 for Ian Anderson. But I'd much rather have uh, Tariq Skubal in, in fantasy because uh, dude just hit 100 and, um, you know, has remade himself uh, and, you know, has uh, certain plus pitches. Whereas I'm just, with Ian Anderson, I'm just worried that those low spin curveballs are not going to work in the major leagues. Yeah, I, I think those are good examples of, of just how different the approach can be and, and how much more important it is, is for us as fantasy players to have uh, high strikeout potential too. I mean, I, I think that's a huge and it looks deal. like It does look like Ian Anderson has that though, to be fair, uh, because of some of his strikeout rates. But, um, you know, to some extent, uh, I just, I don't know that I believe them because of the, the spin rates. So, uh, and they've, they've been, you know, when he got to AAA, they dropped and he gave up a ton of homers. So, you know, can he survive the rabbit ball too is another question. So um, we'll see. I think Ian Anderson is actually a, a really fascinating test case. So we'll see how he works out. And by the way, if you are interested in some more prospect talk, specifically with someone who ranks prospects, James Anderson is the guest on tomorrow's episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast. So I'm sure we will ask him some questions about his process and we'll dive a bit more into you know how we might want to prioritize the players taken uh, both on Wednesday night and even early on or even throughout the evening on Thursday as well. I mean, there's still four more rounds to go on Thursday, which um, I'm pretty pumped about. Yep, and uh, I've got a piece coming out tomorrow about um, the legitimacy of a 50-game season versus an 80-game season. Um, and I was surprised to find out just as a teaser, there's a fairly large difference hmm. and I'm not talking, just talking about like 30 games, dude, <laughs> <laughs> like in terms of, uh, what you know about the quality of a team, you know, a lot, lot more. Uh, and there's in fact an inflection point, uh, right around 80. So, um, I'll be dropping that tomorrow and, uh, enjoy the, the uh, the next round of the draft, if you're if you're going to go that deep, just know that they, you may not be even in the top 200 by the time the second round ends. Yeah, definitely keep that in mind as you're thinking about the keeper and dynasty implications of, of things as they play out this evening. If you're enjoying our show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, please take a moment to do that. We would greatly appreciate that. If you don't already have a subscription to The Athletic, you can get 40% off at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. As always, you can reach us via email, rates and barrels at theathletic.com. If you've got questions for us, spell out the word and if you go the email route. Um, and you can find Eno on Twitter at Eno Saris. I'm at Derek Van Riper. Admittedly, there are a few emails that have been sent my way in the last few days. I've not been able to get to them yet. Things have oh, been hectic here. So there's I will a be... really good one uh, asking about different questions about command and stuff. And I'm eager to get to that. I think we may uh, get to that that email in the context of a pitcher rank uh, re- discussion um, because it just seems it's too too on the nose for um, how I see pitching and, and how I analyze pitching. So whoever sent that, that list of questions about uh, command stuff, uh, we will answer those. Um, and if you're impatient, ping me again. I can give you some answers <laughs> now. Uh, but because I, I think we will go to the pitching ranks in like a week or two when Hopefully, uh, we've got some spring training going and a, and a, and a uh, season to point to. Yeah, that's 
on the horizon for us, and uh, we're going to try and wrap up our divisional series as well in the next couple of episodes. So uh, hopefully there's a lot more to talk about beyond those episodes. Certainly some good questions in there. And a few people have reached out about breaking into the industry and uh, looking for some feedback. I'm going to respond. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to do my best to help. Uh, unfortunately, after I put out that that call, that offer, uh, we had some some layoffs at The Athletic and we've been uh, kind of scrambling to just keep things running smoothly throughout the audio team. So just a heads up. I, I see it. I hear it. I'm here to help you. It's just going to take me a little longer than I anticipated. So uh, my apologies for not being as immediately responsive to that as I thought I would have been when I put that out there. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. Have a great weekend. We are back with you on Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.